The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. I want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads. Praise God for fathers. Amen. Why don't you give all the dads a hand? Amen. We love dads. Uh, not just because they're, you know, great grillers and great lawnmowers and all the stereotypical stuff, but we know that dads have a crucial role to play in God's redemptive plan in the earth. Uh, it's really important. Uh, we are one of the primary ways, dads are, that uh, the character and nature of God himself is reflected to the world. So it's a big responsibility, uh, and it's a big blessing. And I think one of, one of the elements of God's character and nature that dads maybe are uniquely uh, qualified to reflect to the world is the fact that I know, I know God has a sense of humor. If you read the scriptures, you know. Um, there's sometimes he's looking down on us and, and, and chuckling. And uh, you can see in his word as well that God does laugh and God does have a sense of humor. And I think one of the most important ways that dads can reflect this element of God's character and nature is to tell jokes that are so lame that uh, they're only first embarrassing to their kids for years. And then only later on, much later on when they're adults, do they actually figure out that they're funny. So um, I, I thought just in, in commemoration, we'll get to Psalms 8 in a minute, but in commemoration of uh, Father's Dad, I just want to tell you a few dad jokes, if that's all right. So um, these, these are some of my faves. I, I, have, I have fully embraced and I believe have um, qualified myself as uh, a stereotypical dad. Lucy is five and rolls her eyes at me quite often. Uh, because of my attempts at humor, and so I feel like I'm doing really good. I feel encouraged about it, and so I want to share some, some, of, some of this with you. So, uh, first, what did the dad buffalo say to the little buffalo when he was leaving the house? Bye, son. <laughs> That's first for a reason. I really like that one. I really do. Okay. Um, how do you organize a space-themed party? You plan it. <laughs> they only get better from here. What do you call a bunch of killer whales playing instruments? An orchestra. <laughs> I rest my case. Oh, no, 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 no. I forgot one. I forgot one. I forgot one. (laughs) How much does a hipster weigh? An Instagram. (laughs) Boom! Yes. There's one more. This is it, I promise. I, 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 I forgot. This one's good. Why don't crabs ever give to charity? Because they're shellfish. Killing it, killing it. All right, turn me, if you would, to the book of Psalms, chapter 8. Praise God that he has a sense of humor, and he has imbued that part of his character into dads so that we can share it with the world. I'm thankful for that. And uh, all of you lame dads out there, embrace it. Just embrace it. It's awesome. Turn me, if you would, to the book of Psalms, chapter 8. And uh, as we continue our journey throughout the Psalms, we see a bit of a tempo change here in Psalms 8 compared to what we've seen thus far. Uh, Many of the previous Psalms have been honest confessions of struggle, uh, whether external attacks or internal struggles, even sin. 
sins that uh, were being committed or being committed against the, the, the writer of the psalm, uh, but also in the midst of really honest confession and honest kind of laying out of these struggles, we see always an unwavering trust in God's faithfulness. That's, I think, one of the biggest elements we've pulled out of what we've seen in the psalms thus far, that it is not sin to struggle, and actually God encourages us to be honest. But in the midst of our honesty, we have to have those anchor points for our soul, and we need to also declare our trust and faith in God, even in the midst of, of the times when we're feeling pressure. So that's been <clears throat> really wonderful, I think, instructive and helpful for us uh, as a church. Uh, but this psalm is primarily a declaration of God's incalculable grandeur. This is a really just beautiful psalm. That it, it's, it's overall, it's, it's giving us this idea that we should, we should be in awestruck wonder when we understand that God knows and cares for us, when we see God in all of his cosmic majesty, when we see and we understand or try as best we can to understand just how magnificent he really is, and then coupled with that understanding of his greatness, the fact that he would be bothered with us at all. We, we see the psalmist spending most of the time of Psalm 8 just declaring how thankful and blown away he is by that. And so this will, be, this will be fun for us and I think good for us. So let's read Psalm 8 together and uh, then we'll work through it. Praise God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How many of you were Christians in the late 80s, early 90s? How many of you have a song in your head right now? Praise God. Amen. For those of you that don't know, I'm going to give you enough just to go to the internet and try to find it. It sounds a bit something like this. This is rare. This is a sound bite, so I hope we're recording. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? 80s, 90s Christians, you got it? Was it close? Natalie told me I was nowhere close, and she had no idea what I was talking about, and she's being hateful because I know I'm close. That's pretty close. Close enough for you to figure it out, right? So I never knew because I don't know why that that wonderful song uh, was based out of a psalm, but it is. So, praise the Lord. Uh, let's continue. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, <clears throat> the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Now we sound like a Phil Wickham song. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Praise God. Amen. I'm looking forward to this. Okay. Uh, let's go back to verse 1, and we'll just, we'll just work through this bit by bit. So, first of all, verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, it's the same way the psalm has ended, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens? Uh, first of all, we see that David understands here that God is not just the God of Israel, but his majestic and sovereign reign extends over all nations and all peoples for all time. And so he's not just the God of Israel. David has this idea that God's splendor, it's, it, it encompasses all of the earth and all of uh, its inhabitants. And so uh, that's, 
that's pretty awesome. Uh, not even all of the 260 billion cubic miles of earth can contain or express the glory and splendor of God. His splendor is painted across the heavens for all to see. And so even the earth, as big as it is and as beautiful as it is, all of what the earth itself declares about the creative and, and, and majestic power of God Almighty, uh, I mean, that should be enough, right, for us to understand how big and powerful and wonderful he is, but, but it cannot contain, and that's why even as we look around us and are blown away by the beauty of what God's created, we can look up into the heavens and see an expanse farther than our eye could even hope to reach of, of how incredibly powerful and creative and, and majestic our God is. And so it's, it's his, his glory is declared in the earth and also in the heavens. Verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. This is interesting and, and a little bit confusing in order here. I don't think it's necessarily easy for us to understand the flow of thought. So let's first look at the fact that in Matthew 21, Jesus quotes Psalm 8. And so when we're trying to figure out, okay, well, we kind of see what David's doing here at the beginning as far as talking about God's majesty and his splendor and how it's widespread in both the earth and the heavens. But then what's he talking about, you know, nursing babes and, and adversaries all together for? What's going on there? So I'm, I'm just going to read you. Just, just listen to this. It's a familiar scene from Matthew 21. This is where Jesus quotes Psalm 8. And it'll give us some understanding from God's mind of what's, what's going on here in his inspired scripture, Okay. Here it is. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now, how many of you dads, this has been your life verse, right? This is the one on the mirror because Jesus went in and turned over tables and made a whip and, and laid the smack down and you're like, I'm a dad, right? And so you got a life verse, Jesus got angry, Jesus whipped people, so... Let's go, kids. You know what I mean? And a lot of times, this scene in the scripture and this kind of um, event, that's what we focus on, but it's, it's really interesting what happens next, and there's something really profound that we need to see. So that happens. Jesus flips over tables, says, you're turning my father's house into a den of thieves. Stop it. And then verse 14, so then more things happen in the same scene. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? Okay, so there we see Jesus quoting Psalm 8. So what is he talking about and what's actually going on here? Okay, let's come back to Psalm 8 and see what's going on. Verse 1, who's being addressed? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? So the psalmist is, is addressing God, and then he says, From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries, right? So who's the psalmist talking to? He's talking to God. Is that pretty clear? We got that, right? Now, now what's happening? So the, the kids in the temple are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And we, we normally think of Hosanna as kind of just an exclamatory word of praise, which it, it is and can be that, but it's also, it's also really kind of a, a cry for salvation as well, which would only be given to God. And that's why these chief priests and scribes became indignant. They understood that <clears throat> what these kids were saying should only be said to God. That's why they say to Jesus, do you hear what these kids are saying? Because they're saying to him, like, you should stop them from saying that, 
right? Because they don't know who he is. And, then, and, and what does Jesus say? Yeah, guys, I hear him. Have you not read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? So what is Jesus saying here? Yes, I hear them, and yes, it's okay, because yes, I am the God that should be worshipped. Mm, come on. And that's why we can't settle for some surface level understanding of the scriptures, man. We got to understand how the Old Testament ties to the New Testament because you can breeze over that and all you remember is Jesus flipped tables over, right? But man, just below that, one of the biggest questions we need to know about the character and nature of Christ and God himself, we find here because I hear it all the time. I spent 30 minutes on Wednesday night talking to a guy who was convinced that we as Christians later on deified Jesus because we needed to do that in order to overthrow the, the, the governments of the time and whatever. So we needed to make Jesus, the, the, the teacher martyr, into God. And so we created it. Well, I, I don't think that's what happened because maybe we read that and we don't see sometimes, I think we miss what's going on because we don't understand how Psalm 8 connects to what Jesus is saying there. We don't see that this is a plain declaration of him receiving praise from the children and a clear, he's making a clear connection that this is okay because what Psalm 8's talking about is that out of, out of babies and children's mouth, God's praises will come forth and that's what's happening right now and yes, they're pointed at me and yes, I'm cool with it. And then if you keep reading, he's like, and then he left, right? Because <laughs> it wasn't time for him to die yet, but it was coming soon. And that was part of the things that irritated him, right? And that's, you know, I think sometimes we, we struggle because there's not necessarily this, this plain, sometimes it's our lack of understanding of the scripture that would give us any question whatsoever whether Jesus claimed to be God. That is an undeniable, he is, there is no other possible explanation for what he's saying there. You don't have to stretch you don't have to make anything up. There's only one way for that to be interpreted. Yes, I know what the kids are saying, and, and, and the fact that they're praising should only be pointed towards God, and yes, it's okay. And then he sends them to Psalm 8. Didn't you read this? The children and babies are going are gonna to praise God? I'm him. Keep it up, children's chorus, right? It's pretty awesome. Okay. Amen. Um, and, and how do these tie together? This is interesting, right? So it, it, to me, this was confusing until I really looked into it. Um, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. How do we go from babies and children giving praise to talking about the revengeful and the enemy and how do those things tie together? Well, uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians one twenty seven, I believe, illustrates this point. Here's, here's what we're seeing. Here's, here's the idea being expressed, and it's given in a concise way in 1 Corinthians. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Here's what we need to see. It is no doubt a constant frustration to our enemy Satan when the voices of mere children are praising Jesus, and he must flee in defeat. God likes to take the weak and put his power upon them to make an open show and shame the enemy. And so that's why we have to fight the paradigm of always thinking that, that the person we would pick for God to use is always the person God would use. You, man, go through the scriptures. That doesn't even make sense. He picks the losers all the time. That's why I'm here, right? I know that's why I got in. Because he gets a bunch of glory to use a guy like me. 
And I know a bunch of you, 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 you struggle with identity. You struggle with the, the things you see as inadequacies, and you have to understand. We don't, we don't revel in those and just, you know, I'm not saying just never ask for God's help to improve and get rid of the things that are problems and chains and things that encumber your feet and slow you down from doing what it is God's called you to do. But I'm just saying, man, see the glory of God using the weak and making them strong. And that's what he's talking about here. Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The children, the little ones are praising you and your enemies. Is, see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you get, I don't know, some of you, I, I don't know if some of you will get this, but I, I, some, some of you will. Like if you, just, just try to get yourself back to the time when dudes walked around with battle axes and swords, right? And they, they would get in, like the way they decided what country was going to be in charge is that they, they fought with like bladed weapons, right? So everything came down to might and fighting skill and who had the best weapons. Imagine, <laughs> imagine their mentality oftentimes was not... Uh, defeat was not necessarily the worst thing that could happen as long as it happened in a glorious way, right? For many of those cultures that were rooted in battle as like a part and a need of what they had to do, like there was, there was an honorable, something honorable in, in even dying in a battle that was well fought with a well-armed enemy and, and yes, you lost, but you, you went down fighting. There was a bit of nobility in that idea. But even for those cultures... If a small child with a stick comes up and whoops the Viking dude with the battle axe, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen for them, right? Because that's, that's the worst shame because you should have won that, right? Because that person was weak and you're supposed to be strong, right? And that's, that's oftentimes how it is with us and Satan, right? And that's, that's, why I, <laughs> that's why the story of David and Goliath turns my crank, to be honest with you, because it is not just a story about some ancient thing that happened in a valley, right? And, and it just only applies to then. We are David. Satan is Goliath. We are weak. Nobody would bet on us. Nobody would have bet on him looking at that. But because God came and because God gave him the strength and the anointing to do it, he took down the enemy. And, not, and it's not just that he won. He embarrassed him. That's what I'm saying to you. God likes to embarrass his enemies. God likes to be glorified in the fact that he takes weak vessels that no one would bet on and uses them to knock down the ones that everyone thought would win. To make an open show of it. God is not satisfied to just win. He's got he's to shame anyone that would stand in his way. Further motivation to be on his team, right? <laughs> Don't want to stand up to that guy, right? Because he's not only going to beat you, he'll make you look foolish. And that's what he's going to do to the enemy in the end. And that's exactly what's being said here. That's how that ties together. That from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. They have to go away. They have to be quiet. They don't get to rah-rah run their mouth anymore, right? Because they, they, they get made to look silly when they stand against the God of the universe. Because he'll take someone or something that you, you'd have never thought could win that fight, and, and he'll do it just to show he's involved. Which is... Kind of like, if you just wanted to summarize Love City's story, that's where we're at, man. <laughs> and I'm thankful for it. Because when, when I tell our story, man, I, all I can do is point to Jesus. And it's wonderful. I'm so thankful. Praise God. Amen. All right, we're, uh, we're to verses 3 through 5. So we're going to take those together. 
Uh, he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is a man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. This is interesting. He's saying when, when, he, when he views, when he, when he looks at the incredible creative power of God, it blows him away that God would have anything to do with or any concern for man. That comparatively, we are but specks of dust in the expanse of all that has been made. And clearly God is far, 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 far above us. And it doesn't, in, in normal human relational dynamics, people that are far, 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 far above don't typically mess with people that are of less importance, however that's determined, right? That's, that's not the way God deals with us. And he's... And he's just incredibly grateful and, and in awe of that fact. Uh, <clears throat> when we look at when we look at what creation in general, what what he's talking about here, the moon and the stars, he's talking about all that we can see in the heavens. When we look at the evidence of God's incredible creative power, that that's part of what he's saying is, is what brings him to this place of awe. And so let's let's just think about this together. Let's see if we can find ourselves in awe. I think we should. I'm not I'm not going to nerd out on you too long, but just run with me for a second. A light year, okay, is not a measure of time but distance, right? And it's the distance that light travels in one year. Think about that. Think about how fast. If I turn a flashlight on, for us to our human eye, it gets to the back of the sanctuary. Like right now, right? We, we can barely perceive that what that is is energy that's, that's actually moving through space, right? And that there would be any delay, right? But there's, we've measured how far light can travel in a year. And it's just under six trillion miles, okay? Our minds should already be blown. You, we can't conceive that. If you think you can, you can't. It's way too big of a number, right? I think the Earth's circumference is something like 24,000 miles, roughly, we're talking about six trillion miles. That's how far, if you had a laser strong enough and you turned it on and it just would never stop, in one year that thing would travel almost six trillion miles, okay? The universe is at least 40 billion light years across. Six trillion times 40 billion. If you can do that on your iPhone, come see me afterwards because I want to hire you to do anything in my life that has to do with math. I don't even know what those numbers are, right? I can't even type them in. I don't know if I could get six trillion right, much less six trillion times 40 billion. The 40th chapter of Isaiah says that God used his hand to measure out the heavens. What that tells me is that all of that can fit within his hand. Colossians 1.17 says that King Jesus was before all things, and it is through his sovereign might that all things are held together. There's a lot going on. There are 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone, and at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. These numbers, I realize, are incomprehensible, and that's what David's talking about. Just from what he could see, man, he didn't have all that. He's just looking at the night sky, what's visible with the naked eye, and he finds himself in complete and utter awe at the fact that there is a God that could 
could speak and create all of that, and that that God, a God with that kind of power, a God with that kind of magnificence, a God with that kind of splendor, would also have an intimate care for each and every individual human, as inconsequential as we seem in that grand scheme. Friends, we need to make sure, whatever it takes, we stay right there. Because the temptation is for us to let it become a common thing that a God that big would mess with someone so small as insignificant as us. And that causes us to not live in the constant gratitude that will allow us not to stray away from what it is we're supposed to be doing. We, it's, it's a lot easier to obey God when you realize he's that big. It's just a no-brainer. Yeah, yep, the guy that did that, yes, I'm going to listen to him. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> right? No problem with that. Um, and it's, it's just absolutely awe-inspiring that a God that uh, easily, without straining, manages all of that, all of creation, that all of it is held together through his sovereign might and power. Um, he's easy to worship. It's easy to worship him. And this, friends, is the key to Humility. Not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. The more we focus on the incomparably powerful and glorious nature of our God, the more we will rightly feel both small and insignificant. We can't stop there, though. We don't just stop with feeling small and insignificant compared to the grand scale of God's creation and thus what that says about the God that made the creation, right? We don't just stop at feeling small and insignificant. We don't stop there because the gospel tells us that that the God that is this majestic and sovereign and big and glorious yet still has focused his attention on having relationship with us for eternity and he's gone farther than that. He solved every single problem that we've created and stood in the way of that goal. He is that big. He is that wonderful. We, we could continue forever and I think this is part of what eternity will be. For us to continue forever, <laughs> having revealed to us more of the splendor and majesty and sovereignty and greatness and power and compassion and love and never-ending perfection of the God that made us, that is part of what eternity is going to be, the joy of a continual discovery of how incredible he is and us having new and glorious reasons to worship him forever and ever and ever and ever and we'll never exhaust it. And so that means for sure while we're here on this planet, we're not going to exhaust what we can observe about his greatness. And so how do we do that? There's a couple ways. One, we can do the route that David's done, right? Just look around, right? And be blown away at the power of your God, but also take our face into his word and begin to understand more of his character and nature. Let the jewel of the beauty of his character be turned and let the light shine in a different way and us understand over and over again in new ways, in deeper ways. Um, and, and it changes and grows with us as we understand more and as we live life longer, right? It's, it's, it never gets old. We never exhaust it. It's always beautiful, and if we will seek for it, and if we will, if we will continue in that pursuit of his glory and his greatness, we will, we will never run out of reasons to have new and fresh and joyous uh, reasons to worship him. It'll always be beautiful. It'll always be exciting. If you're bored as a Christian, something's wrong. If you're bored as a Christian, you've, you've somehow gotten out of that pursuit because you can't exhaust him. You can't exhaust reasons to be literally left in awe of his greatness. Praise God.
And that leaves us humble. Or it should. Part of how we know that... uh, Part of how we know that this God, this great and and absolutely uh, awe-inspiring, magnificent, glorious God, the reason we know He has set His affection and attention upon us, the reason we know that He cares for us, um, it's not just because the Bible tells us that plainly, but because, you know, and how do we know He loves us, right? I mean, because the the Bible could tell us that, but I think we know experientially um, that Words do matter, and words are important, but when it comes to understanding the depth of somebody's love, actions help to fill that in, right? And so uh, we, we have undeniable evidence that this incredibly big, powerful, majestic, magnificent, awe-inspiring God is not just indifferent to us, that he hasn't just done all that he's done. He hasn't just created this incredible and wondrous creation and then, and then kind of set it to spin and, and backed away and doesn't care. We, and, and, and the greatest evidence we have for that is the fact that he sent his son. Because he could have just let it go, right? He could have just set it up, given us some parameters, and then backed away and let us do what we were going to do. But he couldn't and he, and he would have been right. He would have been just in doing that. He still would have done more than, than, than we deserve. He's still <laughs> like a potter taking lumps of clay out of the ground and making it into something beautiful. He still deserves our worship if that's all he did, but he didn't. Because we, he set it all up and he gave us the parameters, but then we messed it up. And we decided there was something better. We decided we thought he was holding out on us. We couldn't totally believe. We, we, we bought into the lie that that some of those parameters were keeping us out of untapped joy or he, he, restrictions that God gave wasn't because of his love, that it was because somehow he was on a power trip. We just believe, we believe those stupid lies and we, we all tend to do it all the time. And, and what that created was distance between us and God. That, that disobedience, that sin, it, it, it created a chasm. It created a separation because God is perfect and holy and just and we are not. And light and dark don't mix. That's what the Bible says. You can't get them together. And so that was a problem. And it was a problem we created. And one of the greatest evidences we have that this God hasn't just given us some words, right, or just, just said he loves us, but there's no real follow-up behind it is the fact that he sent his very son to come and be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, and then be murdered by the people that he was sent to save. The fact that he sent Jesus on a rescue mission. The fact that Jesus, though completely blameless, was willing to submit himself to the the death of a a thief, the death of a vagabond, the death of somebody that was, was guilty so that all of us could receive his righteousness, so that all of us could be pardoned, so that he could absorb the wrath of God that, that was rightly due to us. This is incredible evidence. This makes it more than just, oh yeah, well, God loves me. Oh yeah, well, sure, God's great. It, it, it takes it from maybe intellectual assent. It should. It should take it to this place where we understand that personally, man, God loves you. And, and have we heard that so many times that it doesn't, it doesn't cause an incredible leap inside of our soul to understand that so, so what happens? Either, we, either we're struggling to believe that it's true that he loves us and the gospel should totally smash any doubt that we have, 
or somehow God's become common to us. Somehow we're not blown away by how big and wonderful and, and splendid and majestic he is. And so it's for these reasons that we have to keep these things in front of our eyes all the time. And there's so many distractions that want to pull our attention. There's so many things that want to get us uh, over to the right and to the left. But uh, what, we, what we do best to do is focus our eyes upon uh, the beauty and the grace and the mercy and, and the absolute wondrous power of the God that made us. And then think about the fact that he wants us. And then think about the fact that he not only made us, but he's cleared every single obstacle that we put in the way so that he could be with us forever. Amen. Praise God. Verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> it says, You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the path of the seas. We see here that David is familiar with the book of Genesis. He's referring to the fact that God created man, put him in the garden, gave him dominion over all of the creatures. Uh, God didn't name the animals. Dave, or, um, Adam did. And uh, <laughs> talking about David so much, um, yeah, Adam did that. Adam named the animals. Um, and it is, it is absolutely undeniable that God created the world and then created mankind. Part of what we were supposed to do is be... Uh, his children and be in relationship with him, but also he gave us dominion as stewards over the earth. Uh, and we see here, you know, David, in the midst of this psalm, he's declaring his understanding of that fact. Uh, so he understands the book of Genesis, that God created man in his image. Um, that's the, the, it talks about, the, uh, in verse 5, this, this crown of glory and majesty. And that is, that is the fact that we are image bearers of God, which makes us distinct from the rest of creation. Um, he says that in verse 5, and, and he makes clear that he understands that because we are the image bearers of God, that God has given us dominion over the earth and everything in it. These verses do have a double meaning because they also look forward prophetically to Jesus, who often referred to himself as the Son of Man. You'll see in verse 4 it says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? And so we also see uh, that in Hebrews chapter 2, you can go look at that later, the writer of Hebrews 2 also references Psalm 8, and he sees this as a reference to Jesus and how Jesus came to restore our ability as God's people to rule the earth as stewards because of Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice, right? So God sets up the earth. He makes us stewards over it. You can, you can kind of imagine him pinning a sheriff's badge upon Adam, like, I'm God, I own all this, but I want you to take care of it and kind of have dominion, right? Um, and then if, effectively what Adam does in, in uh, being deceived and deciding to use the dominion and authority that he was given to obey Satan instead of God as he took that badge off and gave it away. And that's why we see language elsewhere of that currently, um, to some degree, that Satan, the god of this world, little g, has dominion over the earth, right? That's where he messed it up. We do know that Jesus came and uh, has, he, has, he has greatly reduced the effect that Satan can have. Christians now, their, their, their authority and dominion over Satan has been reestablished because of Christ, not because of us, right? And so um, that's part of what we see explained in Hebrews 2. Uh, and ultimately, the great promise is... Um, 
when all is said and done, absolutely all of what went wrong because of sin is going to be turned around and made right. Anything that got broke because of sin is going to be built back together and made even more beautiful than it was before. That's part of the deal. That's part of what we see in this flow of thought. That's part of why David was talking about God ordaining the mouths of children with his praises and and his enemies being made to be quiet, right? Because part of what is going on in David's mind is, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? How incredible are you beyond description? I strive for words to try to tell you how wonderful you are. I'm going to come up short, but I'm doing my best. So this is his flow of thought. And then he says, even, even children that you anoint to do so are going to make your enemies flee. And so anybody that stands up against you, they're going to get whooped. And then he goes on to explain how that happens, what that looks like, that this God of splendor, what he's done and how this is going to go, that he's made man a little bit lower. Some, of the, some translations will say he's made man a little bit lower than the angels. Uh, the actual word there is Elohim, and so typically that does mean God. Most people do translate it angels, the NASB um, sticks with the word God. The bottom line is, yes, mankind is made a little bit lower than all the heavenly beings for now, uh, but we have several places in Scripture that tell us when all is said and done, we, as God's image bearers, will be ruling and reigning with him, raised above all other created beings. Again, do we deserve that? <laughs> do we deserve that end? <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, He's so gracious and merciful. He's so powerful. How could he even do that with us? How could he even raise us to that height? It's amazing. I'm so thankful. And so we see that um, the the writer of Hebrews 2 sees these verses to be, and and, and he references them uh, as as kind of prophetically talking about how Jesus comes to restore um, the ability as God's people to rule the earth as stewards because of Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice. And so Jesus, because of his grace, we do now have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we as Christians, we as those who follow God, we, we, now do, we do have the ability, right? Before, before Jesus comes and changes our heart, before we have the Spirit of God indwelling in us, we have no power to really to do anything useful for God, right? I'm not saying God doesn't use unbelievers. He does. But until he comes and regenerates us, um, even the good things we do, our motives are poisoned, right? If it's not for his glory, then our motive is poisoned. You got it, right? So it's, it's got to be for God's glory, which also is tandem and connected to our good, which is really cool. So we get to be all about him. We get to do good things for his name. And then it's not, and then, and then our motives aren't bad, right? So the fact that Jesus came, he, he gave us the ability again to do the job we were supposed to be doing from the jump, right? So Jesus establishes our ability again to be good stewards of the earth, uh, which we see, that's the language we see, right? That you, you've made him to rule over all the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas, right? So he's, he's just catching it all, right? Everything that swims and walks and flies, God has given man dominion over, okay? So what does it mean then for us to walk out properly this dominion that God has given mankind over the earth as his image bearers? And we are the only part of the creation that are called his children. So what does it look like to walk out this dominion God has given us because he's called us his children and given us, he's made us his image bearers and given us the responsibility of walking in dominion over the earth to steward it for him. Key word, that we are stewards. Who owns the earth? God does. But we are supposed to steward it. 
I think there's two completely opposite responses to this idea that mankind are image bearers of God and thus set aside for God's purpose and supposed to kind of rule in his stead and have dominion and authority over the, over the earth. There's, there's two opposite ends of the spectrum, and I think there's a third way that is informed by the scriptures, right? So there's an overcorrection to each side, and then I think the way the scriptures would have us do it. The first possible response to this idea that mankind is special to God, that we've been given dominion over the earth, is to deny that that's the case. Some people look at that fact, they, they hear that I would say mankind has been given the responsibility and ability by God because they're his image bearers to rule over the earth, have dominion over it, and that's all the beasts of the field, that's all of everything, and we are given that job by him. It's only by Jesus' grace that we're going to do that job well or have any hope of doing it well, uh, and let's be honest, in a lot of ways we don't, right? So um, I, I want to start by giving you evidence that our culture at large, I think, denies that this is the case. I think this is the primary response to the idea that God's people, that mankind is supposed to have dominion and authority over the earth. <clears throat> I, want, I want you to, um, let me decide how I'm going to do it. I want you to raise your hand, Okay. I want you to raise your hand if you know the name of the gorilla killed a few weeks ago at the zoo. If I point it to you, do you know the name of the gorilla? If you know it, raise your hand high enough that I can see it. Okay? Is that everybody? All right. I would say that was over 50%. Right? Okay. I want you to raise your hand high if you know the name of the two-year-old boy killed by an alligator at Disney World. That was, four, that was four people. Yeah, I see you voicing it. You've got it. Yeah, okay. That was four people. What's my point? His name was Lane Graves. Pray for his parents. It's terrible. Father jumped in and wrestled the alligator to try to get him back, and, and that's got to be terrible. So let's make sure we lift that Graves family in prayer. It's, it's the worst thing I can imagine. Here's why I said that. Here's, what, here's the point I'm making with the fact that 50% or more of you know the name of the gorilla that was shot at the zoo, and I'm not shaming you about it. It's not the point. Based on the information we have and based on what we focus on as a culture, that was absolutely my expectation on what we've focused on, what there's been more information about, what there's been more emphasis upon, what our media has focused on. I, I absolutely figured more of you would know Harambe's name right, than Lane Graves' name. There is a constant march by the forces of darkness to erase the distinction between mankind and the rest of God's creation. Uh, just watch a science show. Constantly. What you'll see, and, and I'm not saying that some of this isn't true. I think, I think we oftentimes underestimate the, what God has done in the rest of his creation, but there is constantly more and more and more this attempt to put Humans and animals on the same plane, right? Well, dolphins can do this. They can communicate this way. They're actually more sensitive in certain ways than, than people are, right? Or the, the great apes or whatever it is, right? To go over and over again, you'll see. And, and they want to do it all the way from worms to lowland silverback gorillas. They want us to believe more and more that there is very little to no distinction between humankind and the rest of what God has created. I want you to understand that maybe not most people that are doing that research or whatever, and I don't think they have some sinister 
intent necessarily, but I want you to understand that Satan does. Satan wants you to believe humans are like everybody, all, all the rest of creation. There's a reason for it. The more that people believe that man is just the product of random mutations over billions of years and is no different than the rest of the animals, the closer Satan will be to his goal of deceiving us. Because if he can get us again, right, it's not going to go down the way it went down before. He's not going to get us to give up the authority God has given us by saying, hey, you should eat that fruit over there, right? Like that gigs up. So part of how he's going to do it this time, and it's, it's always offering something else, right? So he'll tempt us with little trinkets or all the things that end up distracting us, getting us off of God's mission, looking this way and that, focused on ourselves or whatever. There's all kinds of ways he throws out deceptions, but one of the ways is to get us to believe that our God-given dominion and authority, this idea that we are supposed to rule the earth in God's stead as stewards and as, uh, having, as holders of dominion as God's children, that that's not real. Because if he can get us to believe that's not real and just, you know, we should just kind of treat all of creation on a level plane, that we are not God's image bearers, that, that definitely erodes the authority of the scriptures and kind of what it is the scriptures present as God's redemptive plan and what's going on. Do you see that? It, it, it does matter. And there is, there is an agenda there. Proverbs 12.10 tells us that the righteous care for the needs of their animals. And so being cruel to animals in no way reflects the image or character of God. I want you to understand that. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not proposing, and, and you'll see more in a second, that uh, because God has given us dominion and authority, that means we just do whatever the heck we want to do. For sure, that's not true. Uh, so we do need to care for the needs of animals. We should be kind to them. Uh, and being cruel to them in no way reflects the image or character of God. But if you are on the fence or anywhere close to it on whether human life is more sacred and of greater importance than animal life, then your thinking is not aligned with God on this point. I realize some of you don't like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double down. If Harambe was the last lowland gorilla on the planet... They made the right decision because that little boy's life is worth infinitely more than that gorilla because he's an image bearer of God. Now, I promise you, I'm not heartless about it. I felt sick in my stomach when I heard about it. I don't like the fact that that went down like it did, and I wish it could have ended another way. There's a no, no way does this idea that God, that we are distinct from the animal kingdom, make me some way rejoice in the death of, of a really beautiful animal. For sure not. But there should be zero hesitation on making that choice, right? Because we are the image bearers of God. Human life is more valuable than animal life. And if, if you're not sure about that, I just want to say to you, don't, I, I'm, I'm not trying to come at you harsh. I just want you to understand your thinking is not aligned with what the, God, what the scriptures would present as the way God thinks about it. And so you're going to have to decide what you're going to do with that. Okay? Now, there's, so you've got that response, denying that, denying that there's any distinction between humans and, and the rest of creation, right? And so that leads to some of the things I talked about, confusion about, confusion about whether or not 
animal life and human life have different value. Uh, it, it leads to, I think, extreme activism sometimes um, when it comes to like animal rights issues. So that's, that's one side, that's one extreme, to totally deny there's any distinction whatsoever. Here's the other end of the spectrum, and sometimes a, a, an over-corrected uh, response to the fact that we have been given stewardship by God to have dominion over the earth, and that's exploiting creation because we don't understand dominion, okay? And so you got some people that totally deny that mankind has any dominion or is any different than, you know, a caterpillar, and then you got... Then you got this side over here that just exploits creation because we think that God giving us authority and dominion, that means I'm in charge, right? So I'm just going to do what I want. Many people today have turned to exploiting the earth and its resources, both living and non-living, because of greed. They will throw out the fact that God has given us dominion as a justification for their sinful pursuit of riches by exploiting really the planet that God made and the creatures he put on it. This is because they don't understand that our dominion over the earth and its creatures is to be modeled after God's dominion over us. How do we understand what authority and dominion and stewardship looks like? Well, we look at the way God rules stuff. How does he do it? From how we treat animals to how we gather resources and how even we dispose of garbage, it is clear that many have misunderstood what our God-given authority is for. There is a third way between these two extremes of completely denying that there is any distinction between humans and the rest of God's creation. And then over here, just, well, God said I have dominion, so I'm going to do whatever I want, right? You got, you got two extremes. There's a third way. We must not treat the earth we've been called to steward as if it, as if it is ours to pillage and abuse. We are only stewards, not owners. And that's a key. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We will answer to God for the way we have treated this planet and its creatures, and whether we used our dominion for greed and personal gain or to display the glory of God on the earth. God commands us and expects our obedience, to be sure, but his leadership is always motivated by both his glory and our good. And we must understand that we have been given the earth and its creatures to steward, but we must enjoy their bounty without forgetting to protect them. We must enjoy what God has given us to rule over as stewards without forgetting to protect it and protect them. We can't go wild on either side. We have to understand what dominion and stewardship looks like. But we also have to understand that there is a difference. There is a difference between us and the rest. That part is, is totally clear. That brings us to verse 9. He closes the psalm the same way he opens it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so uh, we see here the, the totality and summary of this psalm is, is David declaring his incredible awe at the power of God, the creative power of God, the power of God to... Uh, totally decimate his enemies while using the weak to do it, and the fact that that God, a God that powerful, that can create all that we've seen and that can make an open show of his enemies whenever he sees fit to do so, that that God 
knows us and loves us and has made a plan to be with us forever. And so he starts by saying, Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And then he ends it that way. He starts with praise, he ends with praise. And in the middle, he's describing really what he understands about God's redemptive purposes in the earth, what he can see of the plan. And he is blown away by the creativity, the power, and the love of the God of the universe. That's what we see happening in Psalm 8. And so I hope this would be a pattern for us in our thinking often, that we start out declaring our incredible praise and awe at the goodness and the power and the majesty of God. And that we, as we think about what it is he's doing in the earth, what it is we know from the scriptures that he's got planned, what we see him doing in our lives individually and in the lives of people, we know that all of these things, what we can understand, we can't, of course, see the totality of what God is weaving for his glory and our good, but the pieces we can see, may we always and constantly be in a place of awestruck wonder at how absolutely splendid and majestic he is. May we be overcome with gratitude by a God that big, that wise, that smart, that powerful, that loving, being our God. And it's because he's chosen to be. Praise God. May we be a people who rejoice in our weakness as it displays the strength of our King. May we be a people who are astounded and humbled by the majesty and splendor of our perfect Father. And may we walk the proper balance in regards to earth and all the creation, letting God define for us our place and responsibility in it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for the Psalms yet again. We thank you for the journey that it's taking us on. We thank you for uh, the fact that it's broadening our understanding and perspective of your character and nature. Thank you um, for what it is you're teaching us through this beautiful book of poetry and songs. Thank you the truths are timeless. Thank you that um, maybe some of the details of what David was struggling with are different, but absolutely we find ourselves in similar situations as we as we wrestle and struggle through uh, this, this world that is not as it should be, as we wrestle and struggle with the effects of sin, as we try to figure out how it is, God, that we're supposed to navigate and do what you've called us to do. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you have not saved us just uh, for the sake of having us and just so that we can revel in the fact that we are redeemed, but you've saved us to a purpose and a mission. Help us, God, to forever and always feel small when we think about you. May we not just focus on our smallness, but may we, may we always couple it with how big you are and the fact that you are involved with us and that you love us, that you call us your children, and that you've made us in your image, that you are concerned with us, the very details that you somehow can be as big as you are, somehow you can be as splendid as you are, somehow you can be as powerful as you are, that all of the universe, which is totally incomprehensible in size for us, for our finite minds to comprehend, that you can hold that in the palm of your hand, that all of it holds together by your might and strength, and yet you know how many hairs are on our head, and you know the deep, deep struggles, every chamber of our heart, Lord, you've explored, and you know right where we're at, and you have a plan for each of us, I am in all of you. And may we all continually live in that place. Awestruck wonder that leads to worship. May we be humble as we think of you, Lord. Help us, God, to understand what it looks like to be your stewards, to walk properly in the dominion you've given us. Um, help us not to overcorrect either way, God. But may we understand that 
Our primary goal is that you would be glorified in the earth and that the way we steward what it is you've given us, that that would reflect your character and nature. So may we think through the way we react to things. May we think through uh, how it is we respond, what we say, uh, how it is uh, we conduct our lives, what we use, what we throw away, uh, all of it, God. May we, may we understand that this is not just, it's not political primarily, that you care about it, that it and it reflects what it is we believe about you uh, and what you've called us to do, what our job is here on the earth as your children. Uh, we need your help to do all of this, God. We need your grace. We ask for it. You said if we would come and ask for your help, uh, that you would give it. If we would ask anything according to your will, that you would do it. And so, Lord, what we're asking is for the strength and for the understanding to do your will. That's all we want because we know, God, that if we do what it is you've made us to do, our joy will be full. We will have peace and you will be glorified. And these are the things we want more than anything. So please, God, help us. Do as you see fit and help us do what it is you've made us to do. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.